0: Good morning, everyone. Remember in uh, Genesis chapter 2 when God said, it's not good for man to be alone, but I will make for him a helper suitable, suitable for him? Look at what my wife gave me. Man, this could, this could pass the 40-foot drop test, I think. Thank you, dear. We are in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, so Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking in verses 17 through 20. Remember, Matthew's gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has come announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And it turns out, as the story continues to unfold, that Jesus is the Lord of that kingdom. And uh, here he is on the Sermon on the Mount laying out basically what kingdom life is like. Uh, He lays out the Beatitudes in verses 2 through 12 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, and then we saw in verses 13 through 16 how his followers are called to be salt and light in the earth as we keep his commandments, and he's going to go on talking about the importance of his commandments And that raises a question. So, here's a kingdom and a king. Here are commandments from the Lord. Here are blessings that Jesus pronounces. So, did Jesus intend his teaching, his commandments, to replace God's law, to set aside God's law. And, and even think about the, the imagery that's being presented here. Jesus is on a mountaintop. He's on the Sermon on the Mount, and it does bring to our minds the image of Moses, the, um, the, the great prophet and law receiver in the Old Testament, going up Mount Sinai in Horeb, as we uh, read about earlier, And in fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Moses when he said that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me. So is Jesus following the footsteps of Moses and basically giving a new law, thereby replacing the law of God? So at this point, the way our Bibles are arranged, with Matthew being the first book in the New Testament, do we forget about the Old Testament except for the stories and the, and the history and start from scratch in terms of obeying God, in terms of following the Lord? Did Jesus intend his teaching to replace God's law? That's the question before us, and that's the question that Jesus answers for his hearers, including us, in verses 17 through, through 20. So let me read the passage, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law So let's understand here what Jesus is saying us. The theme here is Jesus and the Old Testament and the first thing we see in verse 17 is that Jesus fulfills rather than cancels the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills rather than cancels the Old Testament. So a few terms here in verse 17 that um, we should lay the groundwork with. We need to uh, understand what these terms mean. So Jesus refers to the law or the prophets. And then in verse 18, he's going to go on and mention the law. And so the, the law or the prophets, and then sometimes the law, those are just shorthand terms to refer to the whole Old Testament scriptures. In fact, in this same sermon, Jesus is going to do that. So in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus will say, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is what the Old Testament teaches. This is the the summary of the whole Old Testament. So that's the law or the prophets and the law. It basically means the whole Old Testament. And then another important word in the beginning of verse 17, abolish. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. My uh, ESV translation says the, uh, the original Greek word that Matthew wrote in capturing the Sermon on the Mount is the word kataluo, and it literally means to loose from, to loose from, and, and therefore to completely invalidate something that has been in force or to do away with. And we, we get a sense of that in our country's history. We abolished Slavery. With the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Then another important word is fulfill. So do not think that I have come to abolish, cancel, completely invalidate the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here the word that Matthew uses, that we are English translations. Have as fulfill, is the word uh, plerao, and it means to to make full. So the the picture is a water pitcher or something like that, and that that pitcher fills up. That's plerao, to to make full, and and therefore to complete, to make perfect, or to accomplish an end. That's also a shade of meaning, meaning for uh, Ra'o. So, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How does Jesus do that? And it's an important question because there is a sense in which um, the rest of the New Testament in terms of its practical teaching, in terms of uh, the, the New Testament's instruction for us, instruction in righteousness, the duties that it commands us, the sins that it forbids, is really the unfolding of Matthew 5 and verse 17. And so how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? There's at least uh, six ways, I'm going to move through these quickly, but it's it's going to help you understand this idea of uh, filling up or uh, accomplishing an end, which is what Jesus does. So how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? First of all, he he fulfilled a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies in his life and his Ministry, And we've already seen at least one, two, three, four, five of those. Remember, in, uh, back in chapter 4 and verse 14, as one example, um, Jesus le- uh, left Nazareth and went to live at Capernaum by the sea, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah chapter nine and this has already happened a number of times in Matthew's gospel and this is a continuing theme throughout the new testament scriptures it turns out that Jesus in his person and work fulfilled some 351 specific old testament prophecies 351 and this is an obvious way in which Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Number two, Jesus is the one foreshadowed by the Old Testament ceremonial law. So if you think of the ceremonial law, so the sacrifices, the dietary regulations, the calendar system and and all of that, think of that as a composite sketch. And then Jesus is the real living and breathing person that that composite sketch anticipates. The way the New Testament puts it is that Jesus is the substance and the law, the ceremonial law, is the shadow. And you can think of a whole bunch of examples with me. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our scapegoat who takes the blame for our sin. It was his blood that was sacrificed to take away our sins. Jesus is our great high priest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Jesus uh, fulfills the Old Testament ceremonial law. Thirdly, Jesus perfectly kept the law himself. And so he literally fulfilled the law in his own obedience The New Testament is careful to point out to us that he was without sin, that he knew no sin, that he was the holy, harmless, undefiled Son of God. Jesus himself perfectly kept the law. Number four, Jesus taught the true meaning of the law, and that's what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, several weeks, Uh, the rest of chapter five. Is Jesus saying, You have heard it said of old, but I say to you. And this is not Jesus adding to the law, it's not Jesus correcting the law, it's Jesus clarifying the law. It's Jesus uh, telling his followers what the true meaning of the law of God is. And then number five, he endured the curse of the law in our place. There's this constant threat from the law that you're supposed to do this and don't do that, or else there's a penalty. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus in his own person has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. And so Jesus fulfills the the aspect of the curse of the law. And then number six, Jesus indwells believers, enabling us to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, which is an aspect that a lot lot of times Christians forget. For this one, I'll have you keep your finger here in Matthew chapter 5, And look in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And notice verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says here, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Very similar to Galatians 3.13, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So this has to do with the penalty of our sin. This has to do with atonement, with Jesus paying the price for our justification. But Paul doesn't end there. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 4. God did this in Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And there, Paul uses the same Greek word, pleirao, that Jesus uses in Matthew 5:17. The, the righteous requirement of the law is to be f- um, filled up, to be perfected, to be accomplished in us. And how does he do that? who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And just putting a whole bunch of things together, when somebody becomes a Christian, the Bible tells us that Jesus indwells them from the moment of their salvation in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us, Jesus indwells us. And without Christ, we can do nothing. But Christ indwells us and he enables us as believers to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. This was why, literally, Paul says, this is why Jesus came. Not just to save us and forgive us, setting aside the law. Been there, done that, took care of that, no more law. No, he came so that we would be forgiven of our sins, absolutely, redeemed from the curse of the law, praise God, but so that the law itself would be fulfilled within us by the grace of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a very important way in which Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. So you take all these six ways together. No wonder Jesus said, You search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they are about Jesus. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So that's the first thing that Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 7. The next thing is that uh, Jesus affirmed the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. Notice what he says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Uh, iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Uh, a dot is the smallest stroke or, or literally dot on a letter. And they are um, equivalents to the Hebrew jot and tittle. Until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a loaded statement from Jesus. It means... Among other things, that the the Word of God, the the subject is the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is the Word of God, so is the New Testament. The, The Old Testament itself prophesies about the coming of the New Covenant. So, the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments, according to Jesus, are trustworthy not just in the principles that it teaches not just in terms of the moral lessons that it conveys but down to the to each word to the letters in each word even the strokes of the pen in each word and that explains to us or that illustrates For us, the doctrine of verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal inspiration means every word, and plenary means the whole thing. And this is no small subject. Don't think to yourself that this is useless theology because verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures has been under attack for centuries And it continues to be under attack today. And when you are tempted to not take God at his word, when you are tempted to think, well, the Old Testament says this or that, or the Apostle Paul says this or that in the New Testament, but, you know, we've evolved since then. We've learned. And that's for yesterday or science has disproven that. If you're going going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, you need to stand up for the trustworthiness of the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. The shorter Catechism a Baptist Version that the teen Sunday school class has been working through for quite a while. um, One of the questions is, Are the scriptures trustworthy in all that they affirm? And here's the answer. The scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments being God-breathed, and that's the affirmation of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments being God-breathed are infallible, which means incapable of making mistakes or being wrong, and inerrant, which means without any actual errors or mistakes. And then listen to this. In all their parts, and are therefore trustworthy in all that they affirm concerning history, science, doctrine, ethics, religious practice, or any other topic. Can you say that? If you can't, then you're not imitating Jesus. You don't have the same view of the trustworthiness of the scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, that Jesus himself did. And notice how long this trustworthiness of the Old Testament will last until heaven and earth pass away. So God not only gave his word to his people originally to be infallible and inerrant in all of its parts, but he's also committed himself to providentially preserve his word. Just like he says through Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower fades, which unfortunately we will all witness by the end of May when all of this wonderful rain produces beautiful green grass and uh, wildflowers everywhere, and then by the end of May, it's all brown. Sorry. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. God will not allow it to be lost. God will not allow it to be corrupted so that it is uh, non discernible, unrecognizable. Which means, by the way, that the whole premise of Islam and Mormonism, to, to name just two, are completely against the promise of Jesus Christ. The whole premise for the Quran, the Quran says this, is that. God was going to speak through, through the supposed prophet Muhammad because the, the former book, remember, Christians and Jews are people of the book, but the, the book, the word of God has been so corrupted that we can't even know for sure what it says. But Jesus says, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest part will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then what was Joseph Smith's claim? That there's no true religion. All of the sects, all of the denominations of Christianity are are corrupt and evil. And the Bible itself has been so corrupted, we don't even know what the gospel is. And so thank God for Joseph Smith because he gives us The Book of Mormon and Pearl of Great Price and Doctrine of Covenants and his own wretched example to show us the light. But that that foundation of corruption in God's word that then requires the Koran or the Book of Mormon, that's not true. That's against the teaching of Jesus, and it's against our own experience because we have thousands of copies of manuscripts from both Old and New Testaments, and that body is growing with time as there's more and more discoveries. And though the collective body of evidence shows us that the Bible has been more uh, preserved than any other book of ancient literature. And it, it, it in fact, proves the promise of Jesus here. Or Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 24 that um, the earth will pass away, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus affirmed the trustworthiness of the Old Testament, really all of Scripture. Then he continues in verse 19. And here we see that Jesus requires his followers to obey and teach the Old Testament, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and so now Jesus has moved from the general, the law of the prophets, now he's getting more specific, focusing on the law, commandments. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so far from Jesus canceling, doing away with the law of God in his kingdom, Far from that. Instead, obedience to and um, teaching of God's commandments is part and parcel with God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. But that raises another important question. Which commandments are we supposed to keep? Are we to understand that we have the Old Testament, then there's a period of about 400 years of prophetic silence, and then Jesus comes onto the stage of history. He inaugurates the New Covenant, and he gives us the the, the word of the covenant, the Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures. And are we to understand that the New Testament is basically the Old Testament part two. So there's season one, the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament, season two. Is that how we're to understand it? And so everything that we read in the Old Testament, we're supposed to obey? What about the Old Testament sacrifices? What about the dietary regulation? Should we only eat kosher food? What about the death penalty for adultery? Should we as Christians stand up for the death penalty for adultery in our land? And on and on and on. You get the idea. And so we're going to slow down again here. This, this is important. And we're going to put on our thinking caps and think through this question, because if our standing in the kingdom has something to do with keeping God's commandments and teaching others to do the same, don't you want to know which commandments Jesus means? So, here we go. Uh, I am going to um, affirm to you, I'm, I'm going to present to you the three categories of Old Testament law that is traditional within uh, Protestantism in particular. And I think there's good reason to do that. So the first division is the moral law. The moral law. And the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And Uh, remember read earlier, read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, and when uh, um, Moses gave the, the second giving of the law, it's a restatement of the law, basically as they were moving into the promised land after 40 years. But in verse 22, Moses said, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added... No more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Think about that. And he added no more. But God did add more commandments because the last verse in the book of Leviticus says, These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So, what did Moses receive from the Lord on Mount Sinai? 27 chapters of Levitical code. But if that's true, what does Moses mean when he said, and he added no more after the Ten Commandments? It's easy, really. He added no more like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are unique compared to the rest of the law of God. And God even shows us the uniqueness of the Ten Commandments because he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Ten Commandments were stored in the Ark of the Covenant. So the giving of the law itself makes this division between the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law of Moses. And I would add to that, that it's the contents of the Ten Commandments that not only are written on tablets of stone, but they're written on the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. Remember this verse, 2 Corinthians three three, where Paul said, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What did God write on tablets of stone? The Ten Commandments. Paul says the same contents has been written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the moral law. We are responsible as believers to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, sin is defined in the New Testament in terms of the Ten Commandments. The Apostle John, in 1 John 3 3, I think it is, he says that sin is lawlessness. So that's number one, the moral law. Yes, we have to observe the Ten Commandments. Secondly, There's the ceremonial law. And so by that I mean the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Jewish calendar, dietary regulations, circumcision, and the rest. Do we have to obey these commandments that are part of the ceremonial law? Well, look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And notice verses 1 through 4, first of all. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, For since the law has but a shadow of the the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, remember the relationship? The the law is shadow. Jesus is is the reality, he's the substance. But since that's true, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? That's a great question. Huh. The the fact that these animal sacrifices under the Old Testament ceremonial law were offered year after year, on and on and on, was proof of the fact that these sacrifices themselves could not definitively forever cleanse the people from their sins. In fact, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That was never the purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system, to take away sins. The purpose was to foreshadow what Jesus would do. In fact, if you skip down to verse 10, and by that will, and in the context, that's the will of God in sending Jesus into the world to die in our place for our sins. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. Once for all of God's people and for all time. Not repeated over and over and over again. And so obviously, since that's the case, we're not supposed to offer literal blood sacrifices we're not supposed to do anything that is a part of that system because Christ has fulfilled it. And not only that, Hebrews 10 deals with the sacrificial system, but the whole Old Testament system of dietary regulations and um, holy days and the rest, Paul sums all that up in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where he said, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Which, by the way, I believe refers to um, particularly Jewish peculiar uh, applications of the Sabbath. The fourth command itself is written on our hearts but let no one judge you with respect to these things. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. He didn't just cancel it, but he brought it to its intended conclusion. It foreshadowed him. He came. He fulfilled it in that way. And so it is therefore no longer binding on believers. So that's the moral law, the ceremonial law. The third category of law is the civil law. And by that I mean specific laws that regulated society within the theocracy of Old Testament Israel. And for this, I'll just read for you from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19. It, it uh, echoes the Westminster Confession of Faith. It, this has to do with the law. So the, these uh, Baptist forerunners of ours wrote, to Israel God also gave various judicial laws. So civil law, judicial law, he also gave various judicial laws which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution, that being old covenant Israel. But it's not that there's no relevance. relevance. It says only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. And The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was God's exclamation point on that. There is no more covenant political entity known as Israel. Today's Israel is not the same as Old Covenant Israel. In fact, the New Testament makes a big point of talking about the new Israel and God's new nation, believers in fact, are called in 1 Peter 2.9, God's holy nation. Living as a city set on a hill in any country and under, under any legal system. So, I hope this helps you to see how Um, The the law of God in its three aspects, its three divisions, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law relate to us as believers. All right, moving on. Notice verse 19 in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Verse 20, sorry. Jesus here warns against the corrupt righteousness of human achievement. For I tell you, Jesus concludes in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this statement from Jesus must have blown the minds of his original hearers because the scribes and the Pharisees were in the hall of fame of righteousness as far as the people were concerned and in their own minds for sure. The scribes were the Jewish religious leaders who specialized in preserving and teaching the Old Testament scriptures. And the Pharisees, we've already been introduced to them because of John the Baptist, but the Pharisees were the the sect of Jewish religious leaders who were known for their scrupulous observance of their various religious traditions that, according to them, preserved the law of God. So they were the religious conservatives of their day. Maybe you think that 10 commandments are burdensome. Well, the Pharisees had accumulated 613 commandments of their own on top of God's original 10. So you'd think that the scribes and Pharisees would be models of righteousness. And yet, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what was wrong with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, remember last time we looked in Psalm 51 when we were looking through the Beatitudes, so I guess that was a couple weeks ago. And in verses 16 and 17, we read... Uh, This is David saying to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David says, never mind sacrifices, that's easy. God is after the heart. And so God requires an inside-out righteousness. God requires a new heart. And then from this new heart that is humble before him, that is broken and contrite, from this kind of regenerated heart, spring Christianity. But that's not what the scribes and the Pharisees specialized in. They specialized in an external righteousness. Look forward to Matthew chapter 23, which we'll get to eventually. Matthew chapter 23. And really, all of Matthew chapter 23 is what is wrong with the Pharisees. But notice... Verses 25 through 27 in particular. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. No wonder these guys hated Jesus and wanted him dead. But this was the fundamental problem with their righteousness. It was external rather than inside out. And I want to show you what Jesus offers to us. We've already seen this this new heart that then Uh, produces an inside-out righteousness. But do you know what is above and beyond all of this? It's the very righteousness of God. And the Apostle Paul, who himself was a Pharisee, ironically, he writes about this righteousness of God in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to end with this. Philippians chapter 3. verses 4 through 9. Paul wrote, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And this was the Pharisees' fundamental problem, like it was Paul's fundamental problem before he was saved. Maybe it's your fundamental problem. I don't know. But people tend to view God's commandments, anything that you can do, as a way of establishing your own righteousness before God. The reason why the idea of a stairway to heaven or climbing a ladder to salvation resonates with so many people is because that's where we are naturally. It makes sense to us. We're all about establishing our own righteousness. And Paul was there. He had been there and he had done that. But notice what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, remember, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the opposite of the Pharisees. This is the opposite of human common sense. We think good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Show me, give me the recipe of how to become a good person. The Bible says just surrender. Your goodness is like dung. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Step number one, just come to the place where you realize that you are altogether corrupt, sinful, evil, depraved in God's sight, completely helpless, unable to save yourself, even an eensy-weensy little bit. And just receive the free gift of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that will last not only a lifetime, but all into eternity. This is our righteous standing before God that then becomes the foundation of a new life in Christ. It's a life that's characterized by inside-out righteousness. And this is the goal of the law, and it's the mission of Jesus. Come to him today and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law and for its light, its truth, its holiness, its spirituality. But we thank you especially for Jesus, who in his own person, in his great work of redemption, fulfills your holy law. Would you please stamp these truths upon our hearts and consciences? Would you help us to be obedient Christ followers? And would you save sinners, even in this place today?